calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, gentle listeners. Glad you could join us again. I'm Marco Palmieri. Hello, I'm Nicole Otto. So, Nicole, read much Lovecraft? No! Oh. (laughs) Well, you know, Lovecraft isn't for everybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, Especially a modern audience with, uh, you know, 21st century sensibility. There are a lot of things in Lovecraft that uh, modern audiences find objectionable, and I think rightly so. Mm -hmm. What I will say is that Lovecraft started something that other writers have latched onto and run with in their own way Mm -hmm. and made it more palatable Mm -hmm. to 21st century audiences. This idea of, um, you know, eldritch existential horror on a level where characters slowly go mad as they move through Mm -hmm. the stories. It's just a signature vibe that a lot of fiction writers have uh, latched onto and made their own. And and it's a, a really, really cool subgenre of horror. Yeah. The most I've been immersed in it is really that uh, HBO show Lovecraft Country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From a few yeah. Years that's ago. a great example of, mm-hmm. of what I call Neo Lovecraft. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, we are blessed on uh, Stories to Keep You Up at Night to have a writer who loves doing Neo Lovecraftian uh, work. We've picked up several of her stories mm-hmm. and featured them on the show in the past. Her name is Molly Tanzer, and she's also the writer of the two-parter that was starting this week, a creepy mystery about Lovecraftian stories, tricks of memory, and weird people. We're pleased to present part one of In the Garden of Ibn Ghazi, written by Molly Tanzer and voiced by Vikas Adam. Interviewer. We've spoken about your use of the weird in your stories, but have you personally ever experienced anything akin to something that might happen to one of Lovecraft's characters? Bokner. Yes. Despite all evidence to the contrary, I remain convinced that I once read a short story called In the Garden of Ibn Ghazi. It was a dreamy vignette like a fable or fairy tale made modern with a peppering of acerbic self-aware remarks. All I can really recall of the plot is the character of the alchemist Ibn Ghazi himself, melancholy and pacing his lush and magical gardens with his hands clasped behind his back. Well, that and there was a woman who had come to ask him for his formula for the powder mentioned in H.P. Lovecraft's The Dunwich Horror. I... Can't remember the suppliant's concern, just that the powder revealed that which was most desperate to remain concealed, and concealment of some sort was at the heart of the woman's woes. Ibn Ghazi couldn't decide if he would give it to her or not. I liked the story just fine, but in truth, it was a mediocre piece, or at least a forgettable one. I don't believe I would have thought about it again if not for, of all things, one of the unique items in the board game Arkham Horror. In the game, 
The powder of Ibn Ghazi is a magic weapon that gives you plus nine to your combat roll. Pretty good. Anyway, the first time I played Arkham Horror, I pulled that card, and the name Ibn Ghazi pulled on the thread of my memory. The tug was strong enough that I picked up my phone to Google the story right there during the game. I thought I remembered a clever conceit at the end of the tale, but I could not recall the nature of the twist. Nothing turned up in my search results, not even when I put quotes around the title. The story did not appear to exist. At the time, I told myself I just had to scroll a little further, a little deeper than I could while playing a board game with friends. But later, when I got back to my laptop, I still had no luck. It gave me a queer feeling, one I've never been able to fully shake. I know that's a huge statement for something that must seem so trivial, but at the same time, please understand me when I say that I'm sure I read this story. My memory of its images, those I can recall, I mean, is as sharp in my mind as many of my own past experiences, and now it is sharper still, whetted by my subsequent mental self-interrogation. I would not say the mystery of this missing story is an obsession of mine, but it does preoccupy me at times. As a minor Lovecraftian author, the gentleman from Providence is often in my thoughts, and the minutiae of his oeuvre are frequent subtle notes in the chords I seek to strike with words. I am also fairly familiar with the work of my colleagues, for I read widely and with intention, and of course I am acquainted with many of them personally. None of them knows of what I speak. The title has rung no bells for any of the writers or editors I have asked about it. So, you can see, I am sure, why it gnaws at me. Better perhaps to say it nibbles here and there. But I ask you, if In the Garden of Ibn Ghazi isn't a real story, why do I have such a strong recollection of it? From whence did that image of the alchemist's broody pacing come? And why, oh why, do I remember its mediocre conceits but not its brilliant conclusion? It's just strange, and I wish I knew what to make of it. That was how it all began. Upon reflection, this portion of my interview in the Paris Review does read like a cry for help, and people who are into H.P. Lovecraft are famously, sometimes even notoriously, helpful. Several emails from armchair Lovecraft experts trickled in over the subsequent weeks after the magazine's publication, most with links to stories that were most decidedly not my half-remembered tale. Only one individual suggested that acid developed by MK Ultra might be at work, which is pretty good for Lovecraft enthusiasts, actually. Then I received a letter of invitation in the mail. Would you like to see it? I have it here. Just look at that beautiful handwriting. That oxblood red ink. The paper is so lovely, too, like cream to the eyes and to the fingertips. Now, hold it to the light. See the watermark? It looked to me like a serpent biting its own tail, and Euroboros. I didn't notice all that until after I read it, of course. Shall I read it to you? It begins so strangely. Although it is very rude of me to contact you, out of the blue, as it were, I feel this matter is of such importance that I must throw caution and manners to the wind. If you will be so kind as to keep reading, I will tell you my name is Upton DeVries. I got your address by making a large donation to the magazine in which your charming interview so recently appeared. But don't be too cross. I had to get in touch with you, and that seemed the most efficacious method. Emails go awry so easily, or sit unopened in one's inbox or spam trap but a handwritten invitation is always opened immediately. Is that not true? You are probably asking, why is Upton DeVries so desperate to speak with me? Here's the thing. I am lucky that life has decreed I should become a successful producer of offbeat historical plays. If you follow theater, you will have heard of my avant-garde staging of Euripides' Bacchae that brought down the house at the Williamstown Theater Festival in 2016. Though my absence from the theater world of late has been lamented in most major magazines, I have been too preoccupied with my current project to appease their wailing cries and lamentations that I should appear somewhere or other. What is this project, you will ask? Well, 
I am producing a play, a curious one. I can find no record of it being performed in the modern age. The only copy seemingly in existence was discovered in a trunk belonging to the 17th century French noblewoman Marie de Rabutin Chantal, Marquise de Sévigny, when it was recently sold at auction. After changing hands a few times, the manuscript came to me. A friend of mine at a major university thinks it was likely written as an entertainment for one of the Marquise's extended stays with her daughter in the village of Grignon in the south of France. Now, you're probably asking, why is Upton de Vries telling me this? It is because the Marquise's play is called In the Garden of Ibn Ghazi. As I said above, this is an invitation. Please, Come and watch as we rehearse in the Garden of Ibn Ghazi at my remote and lovely estate in the Poconos. I think you should like to see it after all your fruitless questing. Would you not? I've always been an aficionado of all things Lovecraftian, and I think we both should be glad of that, because it means I found you and read your curious tale, and that means I can provide some answers for you. Perhaps. If you should like to come, RSVP with dates that suit you, but do make them within the next month. After that, we shall be taking our show on the road, as the saying goes. But those roads are on the European Theatre Festival circuit, and thus less convenient to you. Sincerely, your humble servant, Upton de Vries. I answered him. I mean, I googled him first, of course. I found out he headed a company called Hentopan Productions, and from the description on the site, I learned that hen to pan is a phrase meaning all is one in Greek, and that it is associated with alchemy. And the Euroborus, explaining the paper's watermark. The FAQ on de Vries's website said he'd chosen the alchemical reference after his first hit, some notorious flop he'd turned into a smashing success, lead into gold and all that. I also found out de Vries had been honored at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, the Festival d'Avignon, and more, but beyond that, his personal life was almost suspiciously quiet for an artist. No failed marriages, no children eager to write an expose, no old hashtag MeToo allegations. It is sometimes true that people are drawn to the arts because they want to actually make art, not for the potentially exploitable power dynamics. It seemed like de Vries was one of those, so I put my RSVP in the mail the very next morning along with a list of suggested dates. I also asked if he would send me a copy of the play. I tried to do it casually, but in truth, I was desperate. When I first read de Vries' letter, my blood had quickened to hear that this Marquise de Sévigny had written a play with the very title that had been rattling around in my mind for so long. I had to see it. De Vries would not send me the Marquise's script, but he did book my visit for my soonest available days. He overnighted me a first-class ticket. The note with the ticket, done in the same elegant handwriting as the invitation, said, Allow me to apologize to you, my dear, but due to the secretive nature of our production, we have only printed up enough copies for the actors. I know you must be feeling disappointed. I hope the ticket and the small gift I have included will mollify you. What de Vries had included was indeed mollifying. It was an 18th century travelogue called Foreign Climes, or A Lady's Grand Tour of Monuments, Mountains, and Other Steep Phenomena by a Lady, as was common for the time. In spite of its beautiful state of preservation, it was ancient. A first edition. I was astonished de Vries would send me, a stranger, such a rare and exquisite book is a gift. Here it is. Is it not a handsome edition? He had indicated a section very close to the end with a leather bookmark tooled with his signature Euroborus. So, that evening, after concluding my obligations for the day, I sat down with it at last in my favorite reading chair and gasped. The marked passage was the start of a new chapter called a sojourn through Spain. Beneath that, a lady had followed the conventions of the era by starting with a brief description of the occurrences to come in the next few pages. It reads, Modern dancing at an ancient site, the Temple of Debod, Madrid. All the colors of the red fortress, the Alhambra, Granada. In the garden 
of Ibn Ghazi, an estate, Barcelona, the beginning of the end. Reasoning I could always go back and start from the beginning after divining what I could about the garden of Ibn Ghazi, I paged ahead. I had to know. As I have said, it is not that the missing story with its opaque title had consumed me. It's just that its absence was a burden never wholly lifted from my mind. Here is the passage from the book. Barcelona ought to put a muscle upon its coat of arms, for the occupants of that city are absolutely mad for them. They prefer them to far finer fishes, and the focus of much of their substantial culinary prowess is on creating delicious, savory broths and sauces for them. Every tavern in the land has their famous dish of mussels, each with a longer history of who hath made them and who hath enjoyed them than their competitors. Regardless of the veracity of these such tales, they are, all of them, delicious. You will find them cooked with broths and precious spices, others with white wine and herbs, still others with cream and bacon and paprika, though that is my least favorite way. I find the fat mutes rather than enhances the flavor of the mussel itself, even if it makes for a luscious sop for a good hunk of crusty bread. The Viscount H. and I were eating char-grilled mussels with a sauce made of peppers and almonds when the players set up across the street. They were a gay, lively troupe, and a handful of merrily attired acrobats entertained us with jokes and japes while the others erected a small stage. The play they would perform, they said, was called In the Garden of Ibn Ghazi. We were intrigued, but the title appeared to make the locals uncomfortable for some reason. They began to murmur and elbow one another even before the play began, though neither my companion nor I could perceive why. The play was, to my mind, unremarkable. The story was of a nobleman of Barcelona, a moor by the name of Ibn Ghazi. Ibn Ghazi was a recluse whose only passion was gardening. He neglected all invitations, never entertained, never went to the theater, never married. So much did he love his greenhouses and his flower beds. It was said that every plant in the world grew in the garden of Ibn Ghazi, even those one might call wicked, poisons and rare herbs with magical properties. And it was said, too, that Ibn Ghazi knew how to make use of them all. He was an alchemist and sorcerer of great repute, a man of wisdom, but his judgment, while lauded, was not often witnessed. At least, that was how the people of Barcelona felt. They appealed to him for advice about their problems or for cures for diseases, but he had his apprentice turn most of them away at the door. The tone of the play was disapproving. Ibn Ghazi was clearly the antagonist. When he refused to help those who came to him, they suffered. Those his largesse compelled him to assist fared little better. It seemed to us that going near the man at all was akin to walking blithely into a burning building, but the desperate are, well, desperate. We heard the tale of a young widow, pregnant with a child her husband had sired upon her before committing the act that sent him to the gallows. They both died when Ibn Ghazi would not give her a tincture to ease her labor for fear that the child would grow up to also do evil in the world. Next, we heard the story of a man to whom Ibn Ghazi gave a sachet of rare herbs to cure a skin condition that had afflicted him his whole life. Cured, he debauched himself for a month until he died of an excess of wine and women. The vignette that most affected me was one of the tales of Ibn Ghazi's miserliness. A woman came to Ibn Ghazi begging for the recipe for his notorious powder a powder that could reveal that which was most desperate to remain concealed. Ibn Ghazi asked why she required it. And she replied that her brother was gambling away what little they had. The woman wanted to find this den of vice, but every time she tried to follow her brother, he eluded her pursuit. He would turn a corner and simply be gone. Ibn Ghazi considered her case, but refused her the recipe. He agreed, however, to give her one dose of the powder and sent his apprentice to fetch it for her. But when the apprentice returned with the powder, she opened the sachet and used it on Ibn Ghazi himself. Of course, in that moment, 
What he was most desperate to conceal was the recipe, so he spake it aloud. The woman took that away in her mind, even though she had none in her hand. Just then, one of the acrobats shouted a warning. Quick as a flash, they'd packed up their stage and trundled off into the alley, not too far ahead of two stout city watchmen who came running around the corner, looking ready for a fight. What do they expect? said our serving girl, sucking her teeth at the scene. She spoke some French, and I a little Catalan. We understood one another perfectly. And yet, I was surprised by her words. In general, the people of Barcelona are not given to acerbic remarks. Why do they give chase? I asked as I watched the watchmen peering here and there and asking questions of the passers-by. Our serving girl looked nervously up the street. My lord does not like his name shouted in the streets as if he were an onion for sale, she whispered. And he donates generously to the city watch to ensure doing so is appropriately discouraged. As for those who see fit to criticize him, bad luck befalls them even if they escape. For who can truly say where the roots of Ibn Ghazi's garden end and those of the more mundane plants of the city begin? What seeds have drifted here or there? What nuts have been dropped in unlikely earth by startled squirrels? As she spoke, the watchmen escorted two acrobats and an actor away from the scene. I hoped their compatriots could raise bail. I, however, had other concerns. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwein, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Ibn Ghazi is real? And he lives here? Perhaps I have said too much, replied our serving girl, which was as good as a yes. I begged her attend us, but a moment longer. Do you know what happened to the girl in the story? I asked. The young woman nodded nervously. Yes. After making the powder, she followed her brother only to discover he had found a door to hell. The woman called to him. Brother, do not go. He said to her that he could not turn back. He owed the devils a great debt and had to pay it that night. But she would not let her brother go alone. He protested at first, but then let her, only to betray her. He offered her soul instead of offering up his own. The devils agreed, in spite of her protestations, and then devoured her brother too. What an awful story, declared the Viscount H., but it can't be true. Can it not? said the serving girl with another glance up the lane. This time, I saw her eyes flick to and then away from, a high stone wall mottled with lichens and moss. Yes, ma'am, she said. That is the wall around his garden. But you must believe me, it is too high and steep to climb. The only way in is the door. We weren't planning to climb it, I exclaimed. There was a curious tone in her voice when she said, one never knows. But before I could ask her what she meant, she had turned away to clear the remains of a meal of sardines and sangria from the table next to ours. The Viscount H., and I were, of course, fascinated by this story of Ibn Ghazi. We agreed that we really had to see his wondrous garden while we were in town. Everybody sees the same things while on their grand tour, or very nearly so, which means nobody wants to hear another overlong account of visiting these famous ruins or those iconic rock formations. It is the differences that captivate a drawing room, and this would indeed be different. It seemed we needed a problem to present to Ibn Ghazi, and for several days we made very merry coming up with tempting predicaments. In the end, we settled on an age-old concern, but spiced it with contemporary politics, 
We would claim I was enceinte by a certain aspiring member of the House of Commons, who would be much discredited by a natural child got on a disreputable female such as myself. The tales of Ibn Ghazi suggested he was biased in favor of the status quo, so our case involved a certain bill that would be much jeopardized if it came out whose child it was. The day we went to the gate of Ibn Ghazi's estate was overcast, dreary even, more similar to our English mornings than those of Barcelona. Our servant knocked and was answered by Ibn Ghazi's mysterious apprentice. Greeted is, perhaps, the wrong word. They said nothing. Neither before nor after we were announced along with our desire to see the master of the house. The apprentice, veiled and obscure, simply turned and trotted up the walk toward the house. To our delight, not five minutes later did Ibn Ghazi himself appear. He was a tall man with a goatee, dressed in long robes rather than a suit of clothes, and he walked with an easy, comfortable confidence. He approached us in our carriage and asked if he might sit with us a moment as he was not prepared to receive guests in his home. We said yes, and he joined us. He then cleared his throat with a delicate cough and gave a speech as brief as it was shocking. I know why you have come, said he. And by that, I mean I know you are not currently in a predicament caused by a member of your parliament. You are curiosity seekers making merry on holiday. An honest request for the shot at especial glory within your social circle might have swayed me to show you my gardens, but all artifice and guile disgust me. You should be ashamed for having mocked me for the struggles I face when it comes to giving sound counsel. Every good gardener knows that a poor seed will result in a bad vine, but no gardener is asked to judge seeds before planting. No gardener, save for me, of course. But you, you are feckless children, laughing at that which you do not understand. So go from this place without the reward of a story for your salons and parties. You do not deserve it. And with that, he took his leave of us before we could think of a single thing to say. We were very quiet indeed as we bid our man drive on, and quieter still that night. Every temptation to laugh made us both feel like the feckless children of Ibn Ghazi's accusation. It was as if the wind had changed, and it had in many ways, and it would be a long time before it would blow itself out. I was awash with peculiar sensations upon first reading this passage. How strange it was to see described the very story I remembered reading, but not be reading the story itself, or at least not the one I knew. It was an outsider's perspective to the tale, whereas the one I recalled had been intimate, present, located in the garden in that moment. I also felt frustration rather than relief. A lady's travelogue only served to make the entire affair more mysterious and obscure, like a face seen through old glass. I was full of questions. If a lady's travelogue was not the source of my memory, was de Vries' obscure play how I had first come across the story? But how could it be? The play had been written by a 17th century noblewoman and had never before been translated. Or, at least... So claimed de Vries. But how, then, had the players in the travelogue gotten their hands on it? Might they have been performing an entirely different but regionally similar play? There was no mention within a lady's travelogue that the play had been written by the Marquise, though. A lady did indeed mention the Marquise during her remarks about her visit to Grignon. Another question. Why? given the sex appeal of a lady's manuscript, had it disappeared so utterly. Setting aside my personal mystery, which was the most sober and least erotically charged segment of the travelogue, the book was funny and so very bawdy. Fanny Hill had survived to have a forgettable BBC adaptation made of it, and Tom Jones a good one. Why not foreign climes? But there was nary a record of the book on Project Gutenberg, and the Google Books copy had most of the pages redacted, putatively for copyright reasons. But who held the copyright these days? 
How could such a book not have fallen into the public domain a century ago, and why would anyone seek to keep it from being generally read? And then, of course, there was the question of how H.P. Lovecraft himself had come to hear of Ibn Ghazi and his powder. He had been a notable aficionado of the 18th century and its writers. Had he found a dusty copy of Foreign Climes in an old bookshop and read this tale of a scandalous woman brazenly flaunting her wealth, her education, and her sexual conquests? It was amusing to imagine the notoriously prim Lovecraft lecherously perusing a lady's saucy descriptions of her carnal adventures with the Viscount H., as well as the others they invited to share in their exploits. Then again, one never knew. Over the decades, many enterprising authors and filmmakers had made much hay out of the numerous sexual lacunae in Lovecraft's writings— here, the evidence suggested he'd enjoyed a lady's foreign climes enough to reference a ribald work, however obscurely. I wrote down these inquiries, and others, over the next three days. By the time I was heading for the airport in the back of the car de Vries had arranged for me, I had read the entire travelogue twice. I was champing at the bit to hear more of this mysterious story in its various forms. The airplane ride to Philly wasn't so very long— but I was impatient and could not stop fidgeting until the stewardess brought me a second glass of rosé. Then I napped a bit, and was glad I did, for I got no sleep on the second leg of the journey. I was picked up not by a chauffeur, but a pilot who took me on my very first helicopter ride. Said pilot had little to say when I asked questions regarding where we were going, how long the journey might be, and so on, so I occupied myself with watching the scenery and playing on my phone until it lost signal. Without an electronic distraction, I studied the forest beneath us. It grew darker, deeper, older as we flew on, and then fell away as suddenly as a cliff's edge to reveal a lawn, and beyond the lawn, a house that said old money as clearly as it said eccentric recluse. No, no landmarks. All I know is that we were heading north. I'd checked the compass on my phone before I lost signal. From above, I saw the house had been built into the shape of an O, with a small, surprisingly wild space at the center of it, all tangled limbs and twisted trunks. Had de Vries commissioned a home that looked like an Euroboros? Surely not. It was an older building, not some new, custom-built McMansion. Had he asked a realtor to find him the hottest O-shaped properties in the country, and this one suited him best? The mind boggled. I know better now. As I exited the helicopter, I ducked down low, feeling like I was in a movie. That sensation was not lessened when de Vries strode out to meet me dressed in clothes that were somewhere between Mr. Darcy and a pirate. Tight pants, high boots, a ruffled shirt, and a frock coat. He even had a saber at his side and a broad-brimmed hat with an enormous bright white plume, which he swept off his head before bowing low. Charmed to meet you at last, he said as he replaced his hat upon his head. The feather bobbed in the breeze from the slowing helicopter blades. Please, come with me. Your room is ready, and I'm sure you'll wish to relax after your sojourn. Thank you, I said, but I wasn't inclined to relax. I was hot on the scent of my quarry and keen as a hound. If it's just the same to you, though, I'd rather see the rehearsal. We're winding it down, he said. All the cast are just sitting around chatting. Go and enjoy a soak in the nice tub, or have a bit of a lie down on the bed and join us for cocktails in the lounge at seven. Please, I've put you in one of my favorite rooms, and I am so hoping you'll enjoy it. How could I say no? He was so earnest, so eager. Not only that, it felt rude to push after he'd flown me out here at great expense just to... I wasn't really sure, actually. It seemed, oddly enough, so that he could personally put my mind at ease regarding this minor, and I really cannot stress how minor it was, concern of mine. For if I had been truly obsessed, I ask you, would I have submitted to de Vries's will? Would I have agreed to wait longer for my answers? 
Would I have willingly been led to my room and had a fine relaxing soak in an exceptional Japanese-style soaking tub? No, surely not. But I did all of those things. And more. I spent a good bit of time idling in my robe while trying and ultimately failing to connect my phone to the Wi-Fi and inspecting the lush carvings of fruits, flowers, and even small insects adorning the frame of the enormous four-poster bed that was to be mine for the next few nights. It was a lovely room in a lovely house, even if the feel of the place, when I went down for a drink at the appointed time, was a bit too 1960s The Avengers for my taste. Old furniture, long hallways, paintings of unfamiliar landscapes, and unfriendly faces. And DeVries. He was a pitch-perfect eccentric of the week. Did he, like everyone on that show, also have a dark secret? If he did, I wouldn't be able to tell anyone about it. The lack of Wi-Fi was irritating me more than it might, given how hungry I was. I hoped there would be canapes or something at this reception. Cocktails at seven was extremely decadent for a plebe like me, and I hoped I wouldn't be expected to wait until nine for dinner. A small voice in my mind, very small, I assure you, added, and for information, too. When I walked into the opulent parlor, all thick rugs and Chippendale-style furniture and trophy heads on the wall, I was relieved to discover that there were indeed canapes, the hottest and the freshest volovans to be had, for I anticipated the first platter by half a minute or so. The bartender was still setting up, which embarrassed us both, and then there were yet more awkward apologies between myself and the server. I'm early, I said to the tuxedo-wearing stripling. I was just hungry, I didn't get much lunch, and when I'm not in a glamorous mansion, I'm usually done with dinner by 7.30. Oh, did I forget to show you the mini-fridge in your room? DeVries was behind me, tall and lean and angular, handsome in a hound-like, medieval sort of way. He was dressed for the 21st century this time, a chunky knit sweater and twill pants with a sharp crease down the front, though the snake-headed stickpin he had thrust through his cravat lent an artistic bohemian air to his appearance. There was, I think, a quinoa power bowl and some cheese in there. Ah, well, the smoked salmon is far finer fare, don't you think? Quite so, I said, taking some from a passing tray. How are you enjoying your visit so far? asked de Vries, once he'd blotted the corners of his full lips with a cloth napkin. Are you having a good time? That bathtub really was excellent, I said. Your house is wonderful. Except, well, is there Wi-Fi? I'm sure I have emails waiting for me, and I'd like to let my mother know I arrived safely. She worries. Ah, no. Sorry, I did not think to mention it. Our router or server has gone down. We are working on it, he assured me. Upton de Vries cannot go days and days without emails, of course. Of course, I said. In the meantime, I will introduce you to the cast, said de Vries, leaving that subject behind. There aren't too many names to remember, for there aren't so many roles. You could actually hear the circumflex when he spoke. Did you read the travelogue I sent you? Of course, I said. What did you think of it? Oh, I found it fascinating. In fact, I hoped you could tell me, did- I thought you would, said de Vries, interrupting me, but doing it warmly. I hope it served to tide you over until the big reveal? Yes, but do you follow the theater at all? No, not a bit. I was losing a battle with my own impatience, the truth is, I actually had to Google you. He laughed. Ah, well, such is the arts. You and I both know that's not the worst thing in the world. It's just good to be Googled, is it not? After all, did not you call yourself a minor Lovecraftian author? And you're still being interviewed in good places, no? Sure. And it was actually S.T. Joshi who first called me a minor Lovecraftian author, so the scales balance out on that one. 
I think he was trying to hurt my feelings, but there's no point to being offended by the truth. Just like the pirate man says, but you have heard of me, yes? I nodded in agreement as I tried not to look as concerned as I felt about the phrase, the pirate man. Yes, I think we shall be great friends, for we are very similar. Now, your unfamiliarity with the théâtre means you won't be as impressed by my cast as you might be. But I assure you, my players are as exquisite as they are limited in number. There is a sort of master of ceremonies. In the original, he's a rather roguish French nobleman, but we're recasting him as a woman. The Marquise herself, actually. That's Jane Harper. You haven't heard of her? Ah, well. She introduces the vignettes and sums them up at times, offers questionable moral lessons and so on. And the apprentice, Rox Teasley, they have quite the pedigree. They were part of the original cast of Tesla along with Adina Menzel. I shrugged helplessly. I had heard of Tesla, of course, who hadn't by now, but couldn't tell you anything beyond that it was about the inventor. Ah, well, you ought to be very impressed. And by the actor playing Ibn Ghazi, too. It's Herman Diaz. The name Ibn Ghazi brought me to attention. It had wandered a bit as a few of the actors wandered into the room. I was curious about them, but I was more curious about the play. It was clear that De Vries knew that, too. He was smiling a little as he waved over rocks so he could introduce us. As much as I was delighted to meet them, they were extremely attractive, with a beaky nose, just like I like, and strong cheekbones. I wondered why it delighted De Vries to thwart me so. Was it the petty joy of a parent saying Santa Claus would not come until everyone was abed? Or was he playing a game? I couldn't imagine why he would, but then again, I watched a lot of horror movies, and I had allowed a wealthy oddball to spirit me away to his remote mansion for unusual, highly specific, but seemingly legitimate reasons. Anything was possible. My suspicion proved justified. As it turns out, just because something is predictable doesn't mean it can't still be surprising. For example, we all froze in surprise that quickly turned to horror when a blood-curdling scream interrupted our little gathering. I had been talking to Rox about the time they'd been in a production of The Phantom of the Opera, which I had loved as a child. In the silence of the room, we heard the call for help and rushed into the foyer to find a woman clutching the railing at the top of the elegantly curved main stair. Come quickly, she implored us. It's Herman. Herman Diaz lay crumpled on the carpeted floor of what, presumably, was his bedroom. We all peered in for a long moment, unsure what to do. It was De Vries who finally stepped forward. He rolled Diaz over and put two fingers to the man's neck. He wasn't dead. We all breathed a sigh of relief at that, though the question remained of what had happened to him. He was sweating, flushed, and pale in turns. The woman who had screamed, an actress named Vera Tolman, said he'd complained of feeling dizzy earlier in the day. The man is clearly in need of a doctor, said DeVries. I will have one of the staff drive him. I'm sure he'll be fine. I just hope he recovers quickly. What a pity. And everything was going so well. I thought that last remark was unpleasantly callous of DeVries. A man had been found unconscious in his room. What if he had a concussion? What if he were only too feverish to wake? Mr. Hursles seemed rather secondary to that. While it had occurred to me, of course it had, that this might delay my seeing in the garden of Ibn Ghazi, the majority of my concern was for Mr. Diaz, I assure you. Producers are all cold as ice, whispered Rox, their equally soft and faint mustache tickling my ear as they leaned in. They have to be. The show must go on isn't just a saying. It's a lifestyle. I nodded, trying not to twitch or tremble. Rox was really very attractive, and it has always made me nervous when very attractive people are flirty with me. 
We all agreed it was best to lower the front passenger seat so that the unresponsive Diaz could recline as much as possible while still being safely strapped into DeVries's older Mercedes sedan. After we'd secured him as best as we could, a man named Martin was given the keys and a credit card. DeVries told him to go and go quickly. What he actually said was, and don't spare the horses, if you can believe it. I felt badly that I alone appeared to be thinking of dinner rather than this man's welfare, but it had been a long day and I was very hungry. I was just about to slink off to see if I could find this alleged quinoa bowl and cheese up in my room when DeVries spoke at last. The show must go on, he said with determination. Rox and I exchanged meaningful looks and, once again, their gaze set my skin aflame. We cannot afford to wait. No matter what, tomorrow morning at 10 sharp, we continue as planned. But how? said Trace Fellows, a sandy-haired actor with the square jaw of an all-American home team football star. We have no Ibn Ghazi. He's in every scene. Upton, you can read Ibn Ghazi's lines, said Vera. She was a short, pretty woman with dark hair that just brushed the tips of her large bosom. I mean, you know the whole play by heart already. No, no, said DeVries. I cannot. I must keep myself apart to watch, to see. If DeVries kept himself apart, why had he been wearing tight pants and a frock coat earlier? I didn't have time to wonder about this for long, for DeVries turned to me and looked me in the eye. It would be best to use a stand-in, he said. But who? asked Trace, with an appropriately theatrical gesture. As I said, the predictable can still be surprising. Would you consider it? said DeVries, looking into my eyes. Would you be our humble production's Ibn Ghazi while poor dear Herman is patched up by the local sawbones? Due to the secretive nature of our production, we have only printed up enough copies for the actors. How can I possibly be the right person for the job? I felt I ought to make at least a token protest. I didn't want to appear too eager. The mood of this whole affair had shifted from horror flick to the sort of murder mystery dinner theater where the audience is forced to participate. You're the only one, said DeVries. I have but a small staff here, and they are kept busy by their duties about the house. Now they are one short, even. I am occupied wholly as director. It falls to you, my dear. If you will help us. I'd be pleased to. I said. How else could I have responded? I shall have the script delivered to your room, said DeVries. Thank you ever so much. I glanced toward where the actors stood huddled together. None of them looked impressed by any of this, not even Rox, who had positioned themselves at the edge of their group a little closer to me. Nor did they appear particularly perturbed by the evening's events. I wondered if this sort of thing was more common in theatrical circles. But then again, they didn't really seem like actors. I don't mean like the stereotype of actors that one sees on TV and in the movies, though that is in fact fairly close to reality. The actor drama you see in the media about actors is written by writers hoping to push the thoughts of the audience in certain directions and misdirections. In private, that drama has different currents and eddies. Who is being inconvenienced and for how long? Who is being upstaged and by whom? Author drama is different. With notable exception, it's mostly conducted behind keyboards and whispered about at unremarkable bars and unremarkable hotels. When people write books or make movies about author drama, they're almost always ridiculously sensationalized, or at very least, the timelines are sped up to make for a good story. The reality is usually much more sedate and petty. Then it is decided, said DeVries. Tomorrow we shall meet at ten, as we have been. And I want everyone in costume. Yes, again. No makeup, not unless you want to. But from here on out, I want you to rehearse in your costumes so they look lived in when we perform. And you will move in them as if you have lived in them. Understood? Good, good. Now, is anyone hungry? Dinner was to be served some time ago, I believe. If anyone still wants it, we can go in now. I couldn't eat a bite said Vera.
Not after finding Hermann like that. Good night, everyone. A few left, a few stayed. There was little talk as we ate local beef and risotto topped with an egg from De Vries's estate's chickens. Rocks sat next to me, and their excellent conversation was somehow even better than the food. Even so, I excused myself before dessert. I was tired from the day and eager to see the script, and even more than that, for you see, it's not fair to say I was ever entirely obsessed with this mystery. I wished to be away from all those strangers. Especially De Vries, with his smiles and his easy manners and his casual air of practiced command. He was playing me. But to what end? Why would he bother? The truth is, I'd been so interested in what he had that I wanted that I hadn't stopped to consider what I had that he wanted. We got to leave it there, but do join us next time for the conclusion of In the Garden of Ibn Ghazi. You'll be glad you did. And if you love stories like this one, there's really no better way to tell us than with a five-star review wherever you're listening to us right now. Until next time, pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 88, features In the Garden of Ibn Ghazi, Part 1, by Molly Tanzer. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Angela Yee and Devin Shepard. And executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Mary Asadullahi. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Nicole Otto. Performed by Vikas Adam. Audio edited by Corey Barton. Additional editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. Featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.